welcome to episode 100 of Crash Chords Autographs. Thank you for sticking with us these past four years. To celebrate how far the show has come, what you just heard was our brand new theme music, written, produced, and performed expressly for the show by two-time previous guest Michael Kill. The theme is called Crash Chords, and we thank Michael Kill for his contribution to Autographs and its next 100 episodes. Now for the prime event. This episode has been a long time coming, for today we are excited to welcome actor, writer, producer, storyteller, singer, guitarist, and of course, the companion and constant supporter of Matt Storm, his wife, Sarah Storm. As an actress, Sarah has appeared in familiar household dramas like Law & Order SVU and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. With Matt, she chats about her experience as a recurring character on SVU and what it's like to be a day player. She also describes how she first discovered her love of acting and how her family has influenced her love of the craft. A member of the 24-hour company, Sarah has also facilitated bringing together some of the best young actors, directors, playwrights, and producers for an intensive professional experience that culminates in their own production, the 24-hour plays, the deeply imaginative, if hastily produced, events that premiere within 24 hours of their conception. An accomplished musician, Sarah has performed both as a solo artist and as part of the Irish rock band The Wasties, a mainstay at Brooklyn Watering Hole, The Way Station. Hear all about her early love of singing and how it came about growing up in the Jewish faith, and also how her love of performance in general has blossomed throughout the years. Now before we dive in, did you know that Crash Chords Autographs is now on Patreon? Support this podcast with tiered donations and in return receive tokens of our appreciation ranging from a shout-out on this podcast to exclusive audio content, custom playlists, stickers, t-shirts, or a fully DJ'd event. This week's shout-out goes out to Stormageddon's Patreon supporters, Rob Starabin and Mary Jane. Visit patreon.com stormageddon. Also, if you're attending FlameCon 2018 in New York City at Sheridan New York Times Square Hotel, Matt will be a speaker on a panel discussing queerness in Doctor Who called Doctor Who Queered. It's at 2.15pm on Sunday, August 19th. He'll also be covering the whole event for a special episode of Autographs, so if you see him, feel free to say hi. And now, at last, the main event. Here's presenting Matt Storm and Sarah Storm. And welcome to another episode of Crash Chords Autographs. I, of course, am Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. And my guest this week is a actress, writer, um, storyteller, musician, guitarist, singer, and my wife. You know, just throwing that in there, too. Um, the incredible Sarah Storm is my guest this week. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I came to where you live. <laughs> you had to traverse a very far distance. From the bedroom to the living room. <laughs> um, I said off air that it's uh, really great to interview my wife on the podcast because I don't have to wear pants. <laughs> see, and I was going to let that slide and not bring it up on air. Well, you, but see, they don't well, know the if I... The important thing is that you're comfortable. Right. Well, and they don't... The listeners don't know if I'm actually wearing pants I'm gonna, or not. I'm going to corroborate that he is not wearing pants. <laughs> oh, no, that's good. He's wearing boxers. Well, you know, full nudity on the podcast is unheard of in this audio medium. I mean, you do work in burlesque. I do. It's true. Um, thank you for being on the show. I'm sorry, not like burlesque podcasts are full of people who are currently naked. I mean, they don't, we I, don't That would know. be like its own podcast. We could ask Victor. I mean, Victor has his own podcast and he has other burlesquers and drag performers on I it. I just, I, I feel like not everyone is the nerds that we are. Pants, uh, we, have a, we have a saying in this house. It's that uh, pants are for suckers. Who have to leave the house. Yes. Uh, we should make a coat of arms. I am wearing pants because this is a professional interview. <laughs> right, Yes. <laughs> Uh, try not to laugh too hard when you try and get that out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to giggle through the entire thing. That's fine. Um, if you're laughing, hopefully they'll be laughing too. Um, so I wanted to start to talk about how early you got into acting or wanted to do acting. You know, I know that you went to school for it and grad school for it and you were in high school and college performances, but how far back does it actually go? So there's a story that my mom tells that she took me to see a performance of The Nutcracker mm-hmm. when we were still living in Nebraska. So I was for sure no more than five, and I'm pretty sure I was maybe four. Um, and I asked her why I hadn't been on stage with the other children. And she said Just matter-of-factly. Mm, and I, I don't know how... Ma- you know me. I don't know yeah. how matter-of-fact that question was. Right. Probably there was a fair amount of, like toddler foot stomping involved. Right. Uh, but she said she had an idea of where things were headed. I also really like, I don't know, like I have vague child memories of like tap dancing on the coffee table when company was over and thinking I was hilarious. Um, I got along better with grown-ups than kids when I was really little. Were you too smart for your own good when you were young? I have 
I mean, I, I'm a legend in my own mind. <laughs> yeah. I, probably, I don't know. I was I was better with grownups than kids. Um, I think because I was around so many grownups. <coughs> mm-hmm. And uh, my preschool was. Uh, I was like the one. I don't know if there were other hearing kids in my preschool, but. Um, it was mostly deaf and hard of hearing kids and that wasn't performing so much but like I do remember like I remember that preschool pretty clearly and I remember being kind of like bossy and performative and mm-hmm. so performative I just remember like bossing kids in this indoor treehouse we had but like I've been bossing people since I could talk right um it's you know and I was about to apologize for that quality but I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing I don't either um so if anybody listening has any information on the 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 preschool housed at the University of Nebraska in the like early 1980s I've always wanted to know what I was doing there and what it was. I think it was an oral school. Sorry, yeah. I'm totally deviating from your question, which That's was... That's fine. This uh, is a did conversation. I perform, did I perform early? I mean, I've always been a performery person. Well, um, you're, it's sort of in your family, too, to a degree, because your father's a rabbi and your mom's a lawyer. So, yeah. And so I there think, was a certain level of, like, presenting oneself and, and sort of acting the... Not acting the part, but, like, there was a performative... There's a public... Yeah, there's a public speaking aspect to both of their careers, and certainly, like, I spent every... Saturday and all the Jewish holidays in the synagogue with my dad on the bima, which is like a pulpit at the front, if you're not familiar with the synagogue, uh, giving sermons and uh, at a certain point in my childhood also leading the services. And so I feel like that's how music got to be a part of my daily life was because there were, there were prayers to be sung and we sing in, in services. So that was just sort of in innate piece of my life um my mom's an attorney so there's always been like a like like you said a bunch of presentation happening in the family life um and beyond that I was the I was the chubbiest kid in the second grade I think it was the second grade I was I was the turkey in the Thanksgiving play of course like cardboard tail and the whole nine yards because casting in that like casting in elementary school is hella subtle Super oh yeah, it seems like it. Um, Who made your costume? Was it the school? I'm pretty sure we had to. So I'm also pretty sure you I made had your feelings. own costume. It was like okay, I wore a leotard and tights and a tail that was made out of construction paper and tissue paper. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that we had. I mean, it was grade school play. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that we had to make the the tail at our house. And I think we performed it at the Jewish nursing home in Phoenix. Uh, not 100 percent clear on my grade. But I do remember that I was brassed off about being the turkey. I, I mean, think I wanted to like be you. a pilgrim because the pilgrims were in charge. Right, and you wanted <laughs> to be in charge. I am I am predictable. Well, that's good that it started at an early time. Yeah. I imagine when you moved on to like junior high school and high school and even college, you were in more straight plays or musicals. The most mortifying experience of my performance life happened in the seventh grade. Oh. Oh, yeah. Are you inclined to share that story? I mean, here, sure, why not? Uh, we did a play called Vanities. It was double cast. And I don't remember... I mean, looking back, I'm like, oh, that was anxiety. Ah! I could not remember the lines to the third act. Mm-hmm. And, like, I thought I had them. Mm-hmm. I thought I had them. And I got up, and I'm in the show, and there is nothing. Like... Nothing. Mm-hmm. I have lived in fear of repeating that moment forever. It was horrible. And, like, I love the people I was in the play with. And one of them, I think, still lives in Phoenix and has this, this lovely family. And the other woman who's in that play with me has gone on, I believe, to be a documentarian and an activist. Like, it was it, it was this lovely formative experience with with cool girls who'd go on to be amazing people and like all I could remember about it for years was like how I fucked it up which is also totally indicative of how I handle things right it's like if it, if it I mean I had I did I screwed it up but I think it was just nerves it was the first time something was all mine um in that way it was like a section that was me and I just couldn't god this is gonna be <laughs> I do much better now for any potential employers that are listening to this than when handle- you were like 12? Yeah, I would imagine so. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, and there was, like, we had the most amazing drama teacher 
whose name was Amy, and I can't believe I'm going to forget her last name because it's not like we were allowed to call her Amy. Right. Right. Um, the Mojave uh, Middle School, because by then I had insisted, by the way, that I go to public school. I was, I was, I was done with day school. Okay. Um, the Mojave Middle School drama teacher is probably like she gave me a place to figure out who the hell I was. Mm-hmm. Although she did tell me. In high school, I think, I went back to see her, and she's like, you had no patience for anyone who wasn't as, like, deeply interested in theater, that was not the phrase she used, (laughs) as you were. And I was just like, well, that's accurate. And that just continued to be accurate. Except, I don't know, like, I felt like I got a little more diffuse in my interests as time went on. But, like, once I found a stage and the, the understanding that I had something to say and some ability to say it, like... I was just, I took it so seriously, which did not help me make friends. It did not help me socialize in like the seventh grade in particular, but it felt holy to me. Mm -hmm. And I came from a place where we respected holy things (laughs) and by God, we were going to respect the theater. I was like, I must've been so insufferable. Like... I, I appreciate the kid I was, but also, like, right. oh, my God. Well, sure, but, I mean, we all learn as we and grow as we get older. Yeah. And, I mean, I would say that that experience that you held on to for a long time probably informed your work ethic now because you work so hard to not do that in, in every performance that you deliver. Um, did to you, not do it. To not screw up like you had. Like, <laughs> yeah, that'll stick with you. Well, that's what I'm, I'm saying. I'm though. glad that I had a moment to live down in the seventh grade and not, like, in my professional life. I mean, you know. There, if there's a place to learn, it's when you're younger. Yeah. Um, Aren't we always learning? I should not hit the, the, the mic cord. Probably not. Sorry for the clicks, listeners. They'll I get fidget over it. when I'm nervous, and I'm nervous because you're listening to me, <laughs> even though you're listening to me in the future, and I'm talking to you from the past. That's Ooh. also true. Yeah. Well, it's not that far in the past. This will come out um, a week from when we're speaking, so... I'm transmitting my voice a week into the future. That's it's that's a heady proposition. Prepos- proposition. Oh my god, I can't even get the phrase right. See, I'm still kind of a screw up. No, I like I cling to this idea that I am, but I'm not. No, yeah. it's an illusion. But I mean, <laughs> anyone who's anxious or grows up with anxiety will let those things stick with them for a while. Um, and so, it's funny we didn't know it was anxiety. Like we wouldn't figure out that it was anxiety well, for like sure so long. Well, also because we weren't prescribing for anxiety back then either. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. I suffered from similar things in high school. Yeah. It so what kept me from trying acting in high school was I had horrible. Stage I didn't fright. know you wanted to try acting. I tr- very briefly in early high school, and then I was terrified and never tried again. Um, I think you'd be really good at it. Actually, well, I've changed. I mean, I had my acting debut as of when we we're recording this this past Saturday as a double role of Zap Brannigan and Philip J. Fry in uh, Magical Girl Breasts. Um, Futurama show that we did. We did a tribute to Futurama. There's no video yet, but there is photos on the internet. You can go to my page or the Magical Girl Burlesque Facebook page to see those. And what was your experience like? I mean, I definitely didn't know my lines as well as I thought I did. I had a very similar uh, it, moment to what you were discussing of knowing them, knowing them, knowing them, and getting on the stage, and for a moment there being uh, nothing. So that's that's the the thing that I had to learn then, and you have to learn now. It's like it's not enough to know them until you think you know them. You have to know them like so cold. They have to like be in your bones cold. So like sure, but I mean, the good thing was it was a comedy burlesque show. So that's true. Sorry, I when I forgot when I when I forgot my line. Or no, I skipped a line. It made uh, uh, Amplexus attack break, who is playing my Kiff, and just start laughing. And then pointing at the object I was supposed to cue that I didn't, and going, "What's that?" And so, it, and everyone got a good laugh. And I mean, everyone seemed to enjoy the it show. It sounds so like it was fine. great. Yeah, yeah. And isn't it nice to know that I'm no less like sanctimonious and overly serious about theater today? Yeah. Um, oh man, I'm sorry. You have nothing to apologize for. So. Um, we, we'll come back to acting in a minute, but did you have an interest in music the same way at an early age? Because you've, you've been playing guitar for a little while, and you've been singing for a while, too, and I know you've had professional vocal training. So I've how been early... singing since I could talk, mm-hmm. but that's, again, that's because I grew up in the synagogue. So you would, would you mimic the cantors? No, I mean, like, I learned to do... like so, Oh, just singing so, the prayers. So Jewish... Well, I shouldn't say Jewish prayer universally, but right. 
Jewish prayer is meant to be a communal experience, and right. that I can like. There's there are prayers that you say by yourself, certainly, but then there are prayers that have to be said in a collective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I grew up in the conservative movement, and that's conservative Judaism, not conservative politics. <laughs> but I grew up uh, in the conservative movement, and um, so the prayers. We're, col- we're collected. I don't know why I feel the need to. I, I'm going to question everything I say. Too. You don't have to. <laughs> know, Nobody's going to fact I check know. you. I just want to be accurate. So when we have a service uh, in Judaism, we need what's called a minion, uh, minyan. So that's in the Orthodox world, that's 10 men above the age of 13 in the conservative and reform. And I think worlds beyond that, it's 10 people. Right. Um of any gender so um so you did a lot of singing growing up just being yeah thank you for bringing me back to the point so so what i do we so i was around people who were singing collectively again from my infancy right right so i don't know how old i was the first time they brought me to synagogue but i imagine under a month and i imagine that i was there a whole lot uh, I remember playing in the sanctuary in, in the couple of places where my father was a rabbi. I, I certainly remember like where my play areas were, where I ran around, what I was involved in and what I, what I was nearby. Mm-hmm. And music was key to that. And I, I'm not particularly, it's funny, I, I, say, I was about to say I'm not particularly religious right now. Um, but like... <laughs> I'm going to, ha- I mean, but that, I don't know that that's necessarily true. I'm not necessarily observant at the moment, but uh, I feel like I spend a lot of my life thinking about that stuff. Um, let me try to answer your question. I've been singing since I could talk, and that's because of, of what I was around. Um, when did you, and when did you start taking professional vocal lessons? And... I think I was in the seventh grade mm-hmm. when I started taking lessons. Um so, and I hear my voice, te- my first voice teacher's daughter is running for Congress, I think. That's cool. That's pretty cool. Um, um, well, you also happen to sell, say, share a voice teacher with Ariana, Ariana Grande, correct? Which I was not going to, uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Did you um, not want to bring that up? I wasn't going to bring that up, no. Okay. <laughs> I, I, my, my current voice teacher is absolutely amazing. But it's it's not for his connection so of much course. as his incredible, incisive wisdom about how the human body operates, how the voice works. Uh, but I mean, that's like it's an. Inter- I say my current teacher. Like I can I study a few times a year if I'm lucky. Uh, resources are tricky when you grow up. Um, <laughs> so. It's it's a funny thing. When I was like 22 and living in Queens, I would practice. Um, and my neighbors would hear me and would say the sweetest, nicest things. And I would be so embarrassed that they had heard me at all. Um, when my parents would hear me practicing as a kid, they would say a kind and encouraging things and I would get angry. Uh, I have always struggled to find a place to be messy and imperfect. Mm -hmm. And I think as a, like I'm a perfectionist, so I don't ever want to do it unless it's going to be amazing. And what do they say? Perfect is the enemy of done. Good God. Perfect is the enemy of like anything happening ever. And so I, to be completely honest, do not practice my craft in the manner in which people who are serious about their craft practice their craft. Singing, specifically singing. Right. I am like terrified to make ugly noises. I let myself do it one night. Um, and it wasn't even late, but like somebody tapped on the wall and I just stopped. It's like I have this weird, I have this weird fear of being heard when it's really all I want in the world. Yeah, I, th- I think it's tough when you want to get good at something but you don't want to necessarily go through the steps that lead you there there is no way around those steps right. i've been i think i i feel like every i can't speak to every kid i certainly went through it when i was younger i wanted to be because i was lucky and there were things i was good at right away mm-hmm. did not struggle with academic i mean 
eventually I struggled with like math, advanced math, but like I didn't struggle with reading. I didn't struggle with, with language too much. I didn't think I, 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 like I was good in school and I was good at doing stuff. I was very bad at people my own age, mm-hmm. but I was good at grownups uh, and I was good at being charming. And so I think I settled into this space where I only wanted to do the things that, that I was good at. And I did not understand how to fail my way through things because it seemed to me, and I don't think that anybody ever taught this to me, I just developed this intrinsic sense that like failure was tantamount to death. If I fucked it up, I was gonna die. And and there's really no way to get, th- like, what do you say to that? That's a really hard place to meet somebody. Right. It wasn't a message I was getting at home. It wasn't a message that I think I was getting at school. But I was I clung to this identity that I was like the good student. I was good at stuff. And if I didn't think I was good at it, mm-hmm. I wanted to be nowhere near it. Right. Um, and And that is hard to get past. I am getting much better. Partially because like life will just hand you failure whether you want it or not. Right? Sure. But I'm getting much, much better at at being messy. But the more I want a thing, the less I will engage with it, uh, unless I fight myself. Like I have, f- I'm being so fucking candid. I have fought myself to this point where, like, acting now, I love it and I want to do it. And I, like, I I made it through college. My four-year three college tour I made it through grad school I percolated for years till I figured out what the hell I was doing and like I don't know that I know like I I can get through a day I can get through an audition I can prep I can learn I can get on set and be myself and be a good team player and and know what I'm doing there right and it took some time I was green as hell a few years ago and I'm probably still like I mean, but, but but saying you're green is, first of all, I would say fairly incorrect to what green usually means, only because you've been working in this way where you process this work for such a long time. You may be green to a certain type of work, but the work as a whole, I'd say you probably aren't because you've been around it so long. Being around it and doing it are very different things. And I think in a, long, in a lot of ways, I, I could not allow myself. It goes back to this paralyzing fear and remember it's not that I'm afraid to fail it's that I be- I spent a long time believing on a particular level that certain things were gonna kill me if sure. I failed I would die so like messing up was like somehow life or death it's really hard to do anything and so I did not I graduated college and I was told that like it would take a while I mean, I'm paraphrasing a bit for like my face to catch up with my body. So this is this is a significant time ago, mm-hmm. and uh, we did not like. If you saw a fat girl on television in an episodic, it was a very special episode, mm-hmm. right? It was the only way that you saw any body that was different. There was like a terrible just representation. If you, if you weren't like cis and thin mm-hmm. and white. And pretty, mm-hmm. there were only a few places that you went. Right. Right. Well, pretty is objective, and, but the others and make sense. Yeah. Well, Hollywood beautiful. There you go. Right. That's, um, that's definitely more accurate. Yeah. Well, all of the, I mean, just we 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 have so such we have a much long longer way to go to get really good representation. Wow. But like. It, I, I think, and it was also that, I mean, even that might be, like, there was terrible representation on television, and it wasn't great on, oh, God, I wish we would edit. Because um, <laughs> I want, because this is, I want to make, I want to be careful about how I say this. Why? What are you afraid of? Um, Because I think I misspoke. It's like, I think, uh, I am afraid of saying the wrong thing and doing the wrong thing and being the wrong thing. Um, there are no rules to this. You're on a podcasting I'm conversation a podcast, with us. But like, re- but so we are making a recording of a statement, right? This isn't like us having a candid conversation in life. Yes, but you're These also... These words are being recorded, so I want to make sure that if I'm speaking to something that is in any way sensitive. Like, normally, if you weren't my husband, I wouldn't even be letting you hear me process this. Obviously. Right? Obviously. Um I hear that. I didn't. So, so let me scale back and speak about the things that I am qualified to speak about, which is like my lived experience. Um, 
I didn't see myself on TV. Mm-hmm. I very rarely saw myself on stage. I don't think I'd ever like and and if I saw a fat girl um if I saw a Jewish person or somebody be portraying a Jewish person they were super ultra orthodox mm-hmm. or they were Adam Sandler. <laughs> yeah. And if I saw a fat girl like I want to sit here and take time and go oh except for that. Like so we had Ricky Lake in hairspray in mm-hmm. the 80s. Um and I'm sure like we had Carney Wilson and pop music, uh, and I'm I know I'm I'm forgetting. Well, I mean, in the nineties we had Roseanne Barr and Rosie oh, O'Donnell. God. Yeah, I'm um, just uh, sorry. This Roseanne is not about... Barr wasn't a human misery in in the no. The 90s. And we're not talking about politics. We're just talking about representation for plus size performers. Yeah. Well, but like, but this is the thing. Not only could we count them. Yeah. We can name them. <laughs> right. That's it. Yeah. And so I get out of college. And well, so first of all, like the body dysmorphia was super real. Um, but I I did not think that there was a place for me. I told myself there was no place for me. Mm-hmm. And I was, again, convinced that if I walked into that room, an audition room, and somebody said, you're kind of fat or God, you're fat or whatever. I was convinced they were going to say to me. Right. Convinced I would die. This is like the fun lie of anxiety. Like everything becomes life right. or death. None, none of this is life or death. Nope. But I was convinced I was going to die. So I, I tried a little bit. I did. I had an amazing time. I did a show at the New York Deaf Theater, which I loved. I had been, I had wanted to do deaf theater. I mean, since like I, I like I idolized Linda Bove and Marley Matlin, and I, I was aware that I was not deaf. Right. But I saw the National Theater for the Deaf when I was or of the Deaf rather National Theater of the Deaf when I was in high school, um, and got to do a program with them through uh, a cultural group I was a part of, and it was amazing. And all I wanted to do was work with them, and they. I, I talking to them after this performance, I said, like, I want to work with you. What do I do? I'm, I need to get better at sign language. And uh, one of the actors said to me, like, go be an actor. Go, go learn how to be an actor. We can teach you to sign. Yeah. Or, like, you can, like, you know, or you can learn to sign. Like, so their concern was not that I have, like, I don't know. Anyway, like... At that point, if I remember correctly, National Theater of the Deaf, it was, I mean, it was, like, deaf-focused, but they had a couple of hearing people playing, like, the maid or whoever, like, right. who would sort of, who would voice things for the the sign-impaired people in mm-hmm. the audience. Um, so, um, anyway, so 9-11 happens, and National Theater of the Deaf, like, so many of our critical cultural institutions gets defunded pretty quickly um, because we were shifting our spending in another way. Um, And I was so lucky to find... uh, Oh, my God, my timeline might be off. It doesn't matter. No, but I like to be accurate. I think that I did this show... For the three people listening who will know the timeline as well. But, you know... uh, I know, but truth, honesty, accurate representation of things, you know. Um, So I think, no, just, I want to finish this. See, I'm a terrible storyteller about myself. You're not a terrible storyteller. I think you're overthinking it. You're also not letting the host ask questions, which is part of it. But I also, (laughs) which I also, but I also like to let the guest go, especially when they're on a on a tangent it's important so let me finish the thought and then I'll let you ask all the questions you want I was I did a show with the with New York Deaf Theater directed by Monique Holt who is one of the most vibrant and amazing performers in the country let's say um if not the world she's amazing and um and I wanted to work with National Theater of the Deaf because I remembered what that guy had said to me. I'm like, I went, I got, I got training, mm-hmm. I became an actor, I had hit a life goal, and like again, 9/11 happened, and like the the arts funding in the country, like priorities shifted and funding right. shifted, and and I still was convinced that I wasn't going to be good enough, and didn't push to get involved at whatever level they had to get involved at, and and you know. And and I was I was safe in an office job by then, and it was an amazing, wonderful job that taught me and challenged me, but also, like I I, I was doing something that felt good and important, 
and I would working for someone I adored and adore to this day and I would soon become involved in the 24-hour plays and like I still had goals but right it was safer to hide well your focus shifted well let's talk about 24-hour plays a little bit so how did you your involvement started through Tina Fallon right Mm -hmm. you met her first so where did you meet no no sorry my involvement started through Warren Light Oh, okay. So it did start through Warren. And so um, through Warren Light, you met Tina. Is that correct? All th- yes. So Lindsay, I believe, called Lindsay Warren. Bowen. Lindsay Bowen called Warren and asked him to write for what was like the first celebrity 24-hour play. It was going to be a fundraiser for mm-hmm. an organization called Working Playground that really inventively involved arts programming in, in in historically underfunded city schools. Is this before or after Warren wrote Sideman? Warren wrote Sideman before I met him. Oh, okay, so this was after. Okay. I saw Sideman as a college student, and I had, n- like, I had no idea, no idea, that I would know any of the people that were involved in that. It was such an amazing piece of theater. Um, a teacher who had been working for Warren needed a temp when she was on vacation and then ended up and, and asked if I would step in. I'd been doing some research for her theater company and then ended up deciding that it was time for her to move on and Warren asked me to stay and I stayed and I stayed for several amazing years. I learned I learned as much being his assistant um, as I think I learned in many of my college classes put together. You, you worked as an assistant for Criminal Intent no, at the time? I worked, no, I was Warren's assistant. Oh, I you were just Warren. Warren's assistant and... So I was, you're, you don't, see, so you, we're so far ahead, we're so far into the future now. Okay. So, which, which story do you want? The 24-hour plays or like me being a writer's assistant? I mean, either is fine. Um, okay. Um, so you were, so the, being the writer's assistant for Warren, which is what I jumped to because I knew that, was after you were his regular assistant or are these one, separate? One, one job. One, one job. job, okay. Uh, I was Warren's assistant for not, like, part-time and full-time over the, t- over the space of, of four years. Okay. Um, and in 2001... Over the summer, so I think this is probably like right after that show, right after I had finished the show with New York Deaf Theater, and Warren had closed a play called Glimmer, Glimmer and Shine, uh, starring the incomparable John Spencer, um, who is no longer with us. Uh, the phone rang, and it was Lindsay Bowen saying, "Hey, can you like you want to write a play overnight <laughs> to Warren?" And I said to Warren, "Do you mind if I see if they need a volunteer? Because I haven't done like any, I haven't given back, I haven't done right. and." Uh, you know, I, and the answer was basically go for it. Yeah. Um, I had to like, I still had to be able to do my day job, but they needed people overnight. I stayed up overnight. Uh, like I was a writer's assistant then too. Mm-hmm. Um, we were well, at, like, I can get so granular with the details. You don't need all that. Like it was just, it was an amazing thing to be in a room where I was meeting like, and Warren was also really great about encouraging this, like me meeting other creative people in the field who are working at these really high levels. Mm-hmm. But to get to stay up all night while playwrights made something where there had been a nothing, yeah. that was so cool. Well, yeah, I mean, my I, the audience knows if they've been following me from Crash Chords to hear uh, that I volunteered many a time with the 24-hour plays. And like just witnessing the experience, not even just volunteering, but the witnessing of the experience is something out of this world. So before there's an experience for you to w- witness, there are some very generous, very brave people who are like, sure, sleep, eh, don't need it. Yeah, well, sure. And and they're up all night. We They get about uh, between like five and eight hours, I guess, depending, to write a 10-minute play. Yeah. And it's and I did it I wrote maybe once for it's a, a reading series. Six six plays, right? Usually. Six plays. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the key so the I mean the key piece that set that year apart is that in between when he had been asked to participate and the evening or the 24-hour time period 9/11 happened and so like right. it was in 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 like and suddenly everything had all this extra weight. Yeah, of course. And and had a and that night he like so he wrote one of he wrote this amazing short play called Nine Ten about people on jury duty 
the day before. But every every play responded to that. And mm-hmm. one of the cool things about like the twenty four hour plays, there's no prompt, right? We don't say you're writing a play about X. Right. It's um, write about whatever you want. You get suggestions based on what the actors bring, what the right. the writers bring, right. and all this we other stuff. We do this meet and greet, so everybody gets to know each other. Um, and over the years, and it's been a lot of years, you can you can do the math since two thousand one, like. Some years they're fun and like there's always they always seem there's always seems to be a thread. Yeah. Nobody has directed a thread, but there's very often a thread. Right. Right. Uh, but it has provided opportunity for people to respond in a very timely fashion. Like from from the generation of an idea to a like a fully realized production where your lines are meant to be memorized. Right. Mm-hmm. The next night. So if something has happened in the world, it's responded to immediately and. And, and fully by a group of very passionate, very dedicated artists. And that, to me, is transformative and incredible. And I have been so lucky. I am so lucky that I turned to Warren and said, hey, can I call them back and volunteer my time? I am so lucky that he said yes. And I am so lucky that when I showed up, this over-eager early 20-something, to this group of incredible adults that they saw what they saw in me right. and welcomed me. I was a volunteer for a while and they made me so that I I was a volunteer for several years and I became a company member I think officially in 2004. Mm-hmm. And now the structure's changed a little bit and now I've been a producing ambassador for the last couple of years like the family has grown we're seeding our space mm-hmm. right. This is like a key a key thing to, to keeping the theater conversation good and going mm-hmm. is to foster new voices and right. move out of their way. And we have this amazing... So I like told people nothing about the 24-hour plays. It's a time-limited theatrical experience. Six plays written overnight, rehearsed during the day, fully produced the next like the following night. And it's so. always for some form of charity or fundraising, either for the 24-hour company or for Now a it's project. for our 24-hour nationals project. Right. But it, for a very long time, we had amazing, we had another amazing charity that we did uh, fundraising for. And yeah, I mean, all over the world, depending on where we are, it, it's different. And I mean, millions, millions of dollars have been raised for charity. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel so lucky that I have been able over the years to contribute a little time and effort to supporting that. You've also acted in one of them. I, I recall if the dossier is correct, you were a cosmonaut. I, yeah, I acted in a couple, but that was my favorite. That was Laura Jackman. Of course uh, it was so Laura that was Jackman. This, that was this... Shout out to Laura Jackman if you're listening. <laughs> Hi, Laura. Um, so she wrote a play called Space that starred uh, Zoe Perry and Jessica Walter and me. And... Uh, that That's... was an experience. It was incredible. So we were on stage at the Atlantic Theater. Um, and, yeah, Laura had written this beautiful, I want to call it a meditation, this beautiful piece about the way that the way that we reach and miss people, mm-hmm. the way that, that people can pull other people apart, um, about need and love and loss. And, and yeah, I got to play... Uh, I believe I was a, a, a Russian, Russian cosmonaut on the ISS, I yeah. think. And I was like... I love I was, that I'm only finding out now that you were on the same stage as Mallory Archer. That's pretty cool. I'm impressed at my own reticence that yeah. I haven't like told you that 97 times. I mean, you might have mentioned, but, but I think that's pretty cool. So, Ms. Walter is married to Ron Liebman, who had been my third-year grad school acting teacher oh, for, cool. for part of the time. And uh, it was... I mean, I knew she was on Arrested Development at the time. Like, mm-hmm. I knew she was formidable and incredible and amazing. And also, when I said I was a student of Ron's, like, she lit up and, like, and I feel like we had a few other people from the New School for Drama who were working on that production because right. it was part of the, t- the 2007 group, um, the, the Young Emerging Artist group. Uh, and I believe... I, don't know if we, I certainly made sure that she met people who had studied with with Mr. Liebman, right? With Ron, and then who I don't think I'd ever called Mr. Liebman before now, but hey, I'm feeling formal. And then we call. She had us call him. We ended up like leaving him a voicemail. Oh, that's very. And sweet. it was just so sweet. But like, she was incredible. She was. She's just so sharp and on it. Sure. And. I mean, there's no Zoe, way. She- 
There's no way she could have done the comedy that she's doing now if she wasn't sharp and focused. No, I know, but like it was amazing. Like it was just amazing. I burble. I get excited and I just chitter chat. But like she's telling like incredible, amazing stories and holding space mm-hmm. and and she has this incredible presence and this incredible like there's a gravitas. Sure. She's she's like she's a wonderful, wonderful person and that I got to spend eight hours of rehearsal time with her and with Zoe Perry, who is yeah. formidable and delightful and so gifted, and me. <laughs> and like, I didn't know what the hell my life was that day, but sure. I was incredibly grateful to uh, to Laura and to the 24-Hour Plays and uh, for that experience. I believe Colette Robert was our director. I can't, like, I can't, I'm trying to right, visualize remember the Remember all the details. And Colette, like, I didn't think about before how every perform like every performer on that stage the writer the director every like there was something very powerful that was probably the first time since the seventh grade that I had an experience of working with a collective of women yeah um it didn't hit me on that day necessarily sure but like looking back it's like oh yeah that was cool I mean it's nice to look back on previous experience that you didn't think held weight and find out that they held more weight than you thought oh I knew it held weight I just didn't know like how much how much um, um, I mean, the people, like, Laura Laura Jackman has been instrumental to the Kilroys, which is an incredible, sure. I, I, love, I use the word incredible a lot. It's an arts advocacy organization uh, devoted to really promoting the work of um, women and non-binary people and, and getting theater, like, theater has a real parody problem, and the Kilroys are working to address that by creating a list of plays, um, amazing. Like they're just great. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm telling you half of what they do, but they make sure that that theaters get access to this list. And the listeners are on the internet. They got Google. If they want to know more, they can look it up. Go look it up. Go look up the Kilroys. Also, if you want to check out some stuff that Laura Jackman's done, um, she is writing on Get Shorty the series, as well as if you like the Minecraft story game that came out a few years ago and some of the other stuff that Telltale has done, she's worked on that as well. Can we plug everybody? Because Zoe's (laughs) on Young Sheldon and Jessica Walter is on on Archer Archer, and Arrested Development. Um, And Colette. Like, if you can ever, if you're in New York and you could, or anywhere in the country and can see a, a production that Colette Robert directed, then by God, you should be doing that. Um, um, let's jump ahead a few years, though, quite a few years, um, to your first uh, run in uh, in recent years with Warren Light and the team at Law and Order SVU. You went in for an audition for a part that you've now been able to recur, what, six times as this character? Five? Five. Five times. Um, as Bronwyn Freed, and then she got married and became Bronwyn... Freed Wilkins. Freed Wilkins. Hyphenated. Um, so because I... I yeah. yeah. Um, because you didn't get that hyphenation in life, so you got it in, in, in show. I think I was still using... was I was using all three names at that point. Sarah Bismuth Storm, yeah. I yeah. think so. Um, so tell me what that was like. I mean, I know that, you know, you went into that audition, you'd kind of gotten the call last minute and just went in, and we were like, sure, let's, let's do this thing. And then it turned into I this mean, great got... part that's been around for a while. So it felt last minute to, to us. You, to us, yeah. But that's how, like, you get appointments the day before. Right. Right, the afternoon before, if you're lucky, very often. Um, I got asked to come in and audition. And I remember, because <laughs> it was, it was, it was at, I got the call while we were producing the 24-hour plays on Broadway. And I said yes, and I was so thrilled to have the opportunity to audition. And I thought, you know... It's like I feel like it's a little bit self-defeating. I was like, I haven't booked yet, um, and and that gave me some freedom, right? Like I was right. going. So number one, we had a really good dance party going that evening. <laughs> I recall. And then we left so that I could prep. Yep. And it was hard to leave that dance party, and I'm so glad that I did. Yeah. Um, and I went home to prep, and I was super solid on what was going to happen, and it was the funniest thing. Like I, I. I felt different going into that one. Like, I just, I didn't expect, I think it was the first time I maybe had the right attitude going into an audition. Mm -hmm. And when I say right attitude, like, your attitude's your attitude. But it was like, I'm going in to meet some very nice people. 
and I'm going to get to perform for this couple of minutes. Mums had said, go book it. And I was, I did. Mm-hmm. I wanted yeah. to book it. But I also was appreciative of the moment for what it was. Right. And, like, I put on clothes that I felt good in, and I understood the character. And, like, it was the dumbest. Like, I couldn't get all of the mascara from the night before off my eye. So, like, I did think I looked a little bit of a hot mess when I walked in, which I maybe worked to my advantage. And I went in and I auditioned and I met the... It was a producer meeting, so I met the producer and the director of the episode. And, um, and I read the scene. And I felt great. And I thought that was it. And I went on about my day. And then I got a call. And, my God, I was... I like looking back, I was I was so lucky, so grateful, so green, so green. I had started stress baking because I'd found out that my job, my hours were getting cut at my job and I didn't know what to do. So I was making us and we weren't gluten free yet. I was making us a lot of baked goods. Yes. And I was so excited to have this opportunity to act. And also I was like, there's always a craft service table. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I can bring them cookies and no one will mind. And I just started stress baking for and, strangers. And you made friends for life with the SVU cast. <laughs> That's probably why they had you back. They wanted the cookies. They wanted the cookies. Um, well, so the funny- I made Hamantash in the second episode because it was Purim. <laughs> I am like everywhere. I'm just like a Jewish mother in training. Um, what's funny about that experience from my side of it is that you kept, you know, you were like, this is a one-time thing maybe. I don't know if I'll be back. Meanwhile, pretty much every... It felt like every five minutes in that episode, they cut to you for a reaction shot constantly. And so there was no way to think that that was, they showed your face so much before you even spoke a word. I was like, there had to be more to this. And sure enough, you got called back and got to play this character multiple times. And then with a flashy finish facing off against the lead character of that show, uh, Miss Mariska Hargitay, one-on-one. It's just funny. to. Did you ever think in that first episode that it would culminate with you going toe-to-toe with some of the most important characters in that series? Did you ever see that coming? No. Not even a little bit? Not even a little bit. I I was grateful every time. I I was grateful every time I was on set. Mm -hmm. That first episode, um, I remember standing with someone um, and we were chatting and like I again, like I was super green, and they were quite seasoned at that point. And I was just remarking on how lucky I felt to be where I was, and how I'd been having such a cool week. It was like that first episode, Mariska Hargitay and, Pro- and Pablo Schreiber going toe to toe. Oh yeah, and which is like incredibly, ta- it was incredibly taxing on them, and they're both incredibly generous, giving actors. And I just, I kept thinking, I'm so lucky to be here. I'm so lucky to be here. Uh, if I never, and I think I said to, to this person, if I never have another week, like the week I've had now, I, I'm like, this has, been, this has been great. I'm so proud to have gotten to this moment. And literally, my job for most of that week was to sit and listen and pay attention. Right. And say yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, and yeah. thank you. And, and I... Like, it was a master class. That's an amazing... It's, a, like... I'm in there in my I can't think of a better... Of yeah, they're great people. And I can't think of a better place to have, like, gotten to cut my teeth... Yeah. ...than that place. And you got... And every time you came back, you had a different experience of acting with different members of the cast. Because it wasn't always the same people. You even got to act with other guest stars, like when you were on the... What was it? A... Uh, a um, a uh, not a jury, but um, when uh, Mariska's character was, like... They were questioning her morals or whatever. You were on a panel or whatever. Oh, I, yeah, Bronwyn testifies to a grand jury. Grand jury, that's what it was. And so, like, you got to even act with people who were also, you know, uh, people who came and went on the series. I think that's really cool that you could get this experience that varies so much from day to day. And so that, that some shooting experiences were probably very different from others. I feel, I guess, it's, I look at everything as an, an opportunity to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think that's what makes you a good actress is that you want to learn from your experiences, not just be there. I th- thank you. I um, it was yeah, it was it was fantastic. I guess I got to see. It was the first time I'd really gotten to see how all the moving pieces of a of a procedural show work or mm-hmm. a, of a weekly TV show work, and um, that team is incredible. The like the camera crew is fantastic. Wardrobe, wardrobe is so central to everything. Um, like, 
stuff that that an audience might not even ever see but transmit something about the character mm-hmm. they take care of that right like yeah. your shoe choice um i it was fantastic it was it was a little bit it was really exciting i felt i felt legitimate as an actor in a way because i think everybody you know i'm sure all working actors struggle with that well and i think there's like there was a you know for a long time it's like if you opened up a program for any theatrical performance in new york practically certainly like anything on broadway and it said also was so and so on as well like there's doesn't programs don't usually list the credit like the character name so much but like it would list the tv credits people will list their tv credits and and law and order was inevitably on there. And it's like, well, it's like most of the Hamilton cast has been on there. Like the original core Hamilton, Hamilton cast has been on SVU, which I think is pretty Some fun. of them before Hamilton and some of them since, yeah. Right, yeah. Renee, Renee Elise Goldsberry was in that first episode, and she, like, she was really gracious and incredible and very helpful. And this was probably a year before Hamilton would open at the mm-hmm. public. So, like, all I knew of it at that point was that, um, all I knew of it at that point was that it was this really cool song that Lin-Manuel Miranda <laughs> sang at the White House. Um, and what I knew of Renee Elise Goldsberry is she had been on a Fox show called, I think, The Following. And I, we'd had this conversation where I was like, I can't really watch. I have a hard time watching people I know like in violent situations on television, which is like, I think I've gotten over that, but it was a weird quirk of mine at the time. She's like, but you're watching this show about a serial killer. And I'm like, it's just psychologically so confusing and fascinating and I couldn't look away. I think that's funny that you <laughs> that you brought up a show that you were terrified to watch because you still watched it anyway and you wanted to talk about this great work that this performer was doing on that yeah. show. I mean again, the awkward never leaves me. So <laughs> I mean I think we're all capable of being awkward. I'm just yeah. I, I feel like But also I feel like a lot of awkwardness is overthinking your own interaction more so than what anyone else gets out of the interaction. Yeah. I think <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Um you were also recently on Marvelous Miss Maisel in season one. Mm-hmm. Uh with Alex Bornstein, which was pretty cool. Um did when you auditioned, did you audition for the role that you auditioned for, did you know you'd be Shopping at a candy shop, you know that, yeah, that so, trajectory. So typically, and not like not always, because some things are under wraps and you audition for some shows under fake names and all that. Right. But mostly, especially for the co-star stuff that I typically go in for, um, it's just like the snippet of the scene that you'll have. With, and that's what they send you and that's what you audition with? Mm-hmm. Every once in a while you find out that there's more. Right. But that, that was pretty much cut and dried, like... Get in, get out, get away. Right, yeah. sure. And it was then fun. Everybody there again was like really nice and 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 lovely. I think it seems like anyway to me that your experiences because you're coming in as this this co-star, this day player, that you get to enjoy the experience and kind of just take in everything, just learn like a sponge, take it all in, and also give everything that you have as well. Yeah, I mean, I think. I feel like the idea for me, if I go in, if I book a co-star, is to go in, be an excellent teammate, and leave. It's a little bit camp. It's like it's a little bit like camping, you know. Like um, you want to take it. You want to come in, do your stuff, and leave no footprint behind. I guess. <laughs> right, kind like, of. Like I want to leave a good impression. I want to be a good team player for the day and and do my job and tell my story. But also, like, it's it's like visiting somebody's house, sure. right? You're always a guest in somebody else's house. And so there's always opportunity to learn, but it's also really deeply important, I think, to to learn as quickly as possible the sort of the feel and the the speed of a show and mm-hmm. to respect, like, respect the house you're in. Sure. You know? Um, I, I know we spent a lot of time talking about your acting, um... As besides the thousands of other things that you do. Um, but I know you did shoot something recently that we can't quite talk about yet. Not at all. But you were on that for a day, and these other experiences had also been for a day, for a scene or whatever it was. Do you feel like your experience, the, the most recent thing that you shot that will shout to the masses later, was 
a different experience than how you acted or learned in past experiences? Like, do you feel like you were more knowledgeable? So, I really, there is literally nothing I can say about what I just did. Right. I'm not asking you to talk about in detail what you did. I'm talking about your experience on set versus your experience like that first day on SVU when you first returned to acting. I know you can't talk about what you actually did, but I meant your experience just being on a set with with other actors that you are familiar with and that you know versus the first time being you're, like going first day of school. Right. Sort of right. being green versus now where you're less green. Okay. Okay, so if I'm hearing you correctly, yeah, so any time, I mean, I think every time I go into a show, it's a little bit first day of school. Okay. Um, you know, it's like you, it's like being the new kid, like, who has just moved to town. So even, even if you say feel less green now, you still feel green walking into that space? It's different, than, so feeling green meaning, like, inexperienced, I don't... You don't feel that anymore. I mean, it's me, and I'm <laughs> relentlessly harsh on myself, so I think I'll always feel a little green. Okay. But I don't anymore. Like, I, I prepare whatever I've been asked to do within an inch of its life. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't decide how it's all going to happen, because, but, I mean, sorry, like, I'm thinking through, like, acting technique. I do my homework. I make some choices. Right. That I will then rewrite as needed whatever I'm told to do, right? Um and once I know that I've done my homework and I'm prepared, again, I go in to be pleasant and and not, like, to be a pleasant person to deal with and to right. work with. And, you know, a little bit it is. Like, you are going, you're going into a, to somebody else's house. You're going into a new school environment, right? right? Every show is going to be different. And by and large, I've been really lucky to have great ha- to have had great experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, but every you know, learning new people—that's you. Anytime you go onto a set, you're going to have to learn new people, right? And um, I suppose I, it's like going into a new job over and over and over again. Yeah, basically. I mean. And and everybody is pretty aware of that situation. Like anytime, mm-hmm. anytime I think a show has day players, like they're going, they're welcoming new students all day long, every day, right? right? Um, and there's a variety. Like you can be any way you want in that scenario. And I don't know. I just I'm I'm always so happy to be there, and so happy that I get to do this thing that I trained for. Right. And I feel so lucky every time. And I just. I am having, by virtue of those things being true, I am already going to have a great day. Right. And I want to offer anything I can do to help somebody else have a great day. Sure. Um, and maybe that's a super inexperienced attitude to take. I don't know. That's just, I, I... I mean, that sounds to me like an experience that you want other people to have, so you provide it. Like, you want you want people to engage with you a certain way, and so you walk into those situations... A certain way. Yeah, I mean, and that seems. I don't ever want to be anything that anybody. I don't. I don't want to be anybody's. Something keeps buzzing. That's my phone. Okay, it's unimportant. I don't. I don't ever want to be anything anybody has to worry about. Sure. I don't. Right. Like, I. I hope that in dealing with me, people's experience is positive, and fluid, and fun. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I can only be who I am. Like, sure. let's see, I suppose the big thing is, it's like I have recognized that, like, I'm a big dork. <laughs> I'm a giant nerd. Um, I'm a chatterbox. And I, like, certainly know how to rein it in. Right. Right? Because a lot of times, depend, yeah, it depends on the set, like, whether sure. that's welcome or not. Like, so, the, you know, it's like it's like any work, like any job environment. Well, right. You've shared experiences with me about being on set with certain performers where you can hang out and relax or chat about past experiences and then other times where you go and you work and you come back, you know? And I think that's just the nature of any job is sometimes it's going to have more downtime than others. Yeah. And I mean, the thing, the thing that I like to keep in mind is like, I might, I might only have a line or two, right? but that's not necessarily the case for the people that I'm with. Sure. And that's certainly like whoever's top of show is shooting however much dialogue they've got on that day, but they've got a thousand, thousand things 
to deal with right. over the course of their regular working life. So much dialogue, just so much to recall. Yeah. So like, you know, it's it's striking the right balance of like being a fun new team member, but not requiring upkeep because people have plenty of stuff to do. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, is there, before we wrap up, is there anything that you would share with a listener who's pursuing something in the arts that maybe you didn't know when you started, but might help them now? Know what the story, like, yeah, know what stories you want to tell mm-hmm. and figure out how you want to tell them find find a way you know don't wait on other people for you to start telling your story um don't wait for it to be perfect it will never be perfect don't wait for someone to give anything to you they will never give anything to you you will earn and fight and and struggle for the stuff you get if you like in in terms of any sort of monetary don't wait like You, there's a huge amount of proving yourself that continues to happen, right? So if you have a story that you want to tell in whatever medium you want to tell it, there's probably like a low-budget, mid-budget, and high-budget way to do it. No one is going to give you the high-budget, right? So if it's a story you feel compelled to tell this minute, figure out how and do it with the people that you have around you and that you love and come up together and keep making things as you go. Um, if there is a story that demands a certain amount of resources, you think to do it right, like get it written, get it together, get it, I don't know, put down on paper so you know what you're dealing with. But like, you know, no, uh, it's fine also to do yeoman's work to figure out how you're doing what you're doing and then return to the story that you're dying to tell when you're ready for it. Like, you have to sort of know. Sure. That um, makes sense. I don't know how helpful that is, but I always hated when people were like, if you can do anything else in the world but act, you should go do that. I mean, yeah, I guess. But you might be good at a lot of stuff. You gotta do the th- You got to do the stuff you want. It is important to focus on like do do one thing at a time. But just because other people have done something in a certain way doesn't mean you have to do things their way. Right? I was told I had to focus and pick one at a time when like right before multi hyphenates became a thing. Right. And I spent a lot of time beating myself up inside because I couldn't figure out which one was the right one to pick. Yeah. Well. Um we aren't all going to be superstars we aren't all going to be a-list above the line actors right some of us are going to build a small but fun career doing yeoman's work and there's nothing wrong with that right like figure out who you are figure out what you want and go after the things that you want don't wait for other people don't like as soon as you can disabuse yourself of the notion that you that that everyone is going to be stars you can get past all that crap and get to the business of like doing the stuff you love. I don't know. I don't, that makes sense that, to me. Yeah. Like, it, there's never a better moment than now. And it is easier to say, like, you know, do as I say, not as I do. There's never a better moment than this moment. Um, but if you, and if you've missed that moment, there's going to be another one coming up, right? Um, to my 12-year-old self, who believed at 12 that it was too late. I think I wanted to be a child actor, right? That it was too late for me. Yeah. It was never. Um, to all those 12-year-old selves out there who are telling you it is too late to pursue the things that you care about, with all due respect to those voices, fuck them. <laughs> fuck them. <laughs> you know, I appreciate that we all want to keep ourselves safe, but that's not always possible and you might as well just tell the stories you want to tell all right well sarah storm (laughs) thank you for being on my podcast you're welcome Um, i'm gonna have to create a podcast and bring you on so that we can like have nerdy 
we're married conversations, which I is mean, totally what I thought this was going to be. <laughs> well, we, we could have, but I interview my guests. I know. Um, before you go. I'm a micromanager. Yeah, you are. <laughs> um, where can my listeners find you on the internet? I am sarahstorm.com. Um, uh, at Sarah Biz? The Sarah Biz. The Sarah Biz at, on, on Twitter. Twitter. Mm-hmm. And I am... At oh. Sarah Bizstorm, I think, on Instagram. I don't think that's right. I no. think it's... Let's check Instagram. We'll Hold check on. Instagram now while we're on the line. While we're on the air. On um, the air, haha. Uh, but it's important if, you know... I'm actually really trying to, like... Build I'm, up a presence. I'm try, I'm, yeah, I'm so bad at all the things you're supposed to be good at to be... I am Sarah Storm on Instagram. I feel like I just... It's funny. I, I clearly love attention or I wouldn't have done yeah. all these things that draw attention. But I also, like, I simultaneously want to be heard and seen and want no one to see and hear me ever. I mean, that so sounds like... it's so hard to have an internet presence when you're like, look at me, but not just yet. Yeah. Oh, uh, it's the worst. I feel I'm like a lot of anxious nerds have that problem when going into the arts. Uh, my, one of my heroes, Kevin Pollack, calls it, hey, look at me disease, which is he's a comedian and an actor, mm-hmm. and he always called it that, and I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, my last task I will ask of you as a guest on my podcast is to do my sign-off. Um, which came from my music podcast, and I've explained this for the last couple of episodes, but I think it's important, which is the saying is music is life and life is good, which I'll have you say in a moment, but I think it's important to remember in life that as long as you're doing some kind of art or fulfilling task, then life is good. You know, this idea that art and the things that you love will continue to propel a good life. And so with that, I will ask you to sign off our episode. Music is life, and life is good. If you enjoyed these interviews, please subscribe to this and the Crash Chords podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to post in the comment area below each post. Keep the discussion going, because remember, music is life, and life is good. Hi, this is Victor Devon, and I am the host of We Burlesque, the podcast. Every Monday, I talk to fabulous denizens of nightlife, including burlesque performers, both seasoned and new to the form, drag performers, performance artists, DJs, and artists who make up their respective scenes. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please visit WeBurlesque.com to check out episode recaps and see all the formats available. And remember that music is life. Life is good. <laughs>